0: Before Christmas, when all through the edifice not a creature was stirring, neither mouse nor Saint Nicholas. The stockings were hung by an aperture gaping, where smoke in its wisdom had e'er been escaping. Downstairs, my uncle was strapped down in bed, while visions of Icar danced round in his head. His nightmares of late had been growing much stronger, and sense dared not trespass his mind any longer. Once a learned professor at Brown University, my great-uncle had often in secret conversed with me, in his study at night, over manuscripts smoldering, with a pipe at his lips, always lambent and smoldering. All that research of his into cults esoteric, strange symbols and glyphs and arcane numerics, of that Dutch survey crew and their frenzied report of a vast arctic city filled with sunken-faced dwarfs. And that journal recovered from one Ensign Lamar, which references he that rides beasts through the stars, gloaming and heathen with corpulent dread, bloated Betrachian and covered in red. And then there's the relic in my uncle's display, a four-sided top carved of wood or some clay with symbols engraved into each of its sides that surely must tell of coming end times. I was pondering this manifold doom that would smite us, when out from my window shone a miasmal brightness, how the pale gibbous moon shone down on his back, which bulged with the throngs of some hideous sack. ho <laughs> ho! With some alien ululations in a primordial tongue, he froze me in place and unable to run. I was forced to bear witness to things vile and foul, so unspeakably horrid, I can scarce speak them now. He summoned his steeds by their blasphemous names. With his gangrenous grasp, he pulled down on their reins. Then suddenly upwards that noxious horde flew, that red-bellied nightmare rising up from my view. Oh, Echo laughter I heard from my roof and then lumbering clomps from thick octopoid hoofs, then repugnant and hoary his stench filled the air while he writhed down my chimney as I watched from the stairs. He spoke not a sound and then off from his back he heaved up that thick throbbing cyst of a sack and from it a stench came so sharp and dense, that I nearly passed out when he drew from it thence, an Amazon Kindle, and a few pairs of nice socks, a sweater, a tie, and Call of Duty Black Ops, Law and Order Season 5, on Blu-ray DVD, and an espresso machine, hope he kept that receipt. Then all at once swung round this tenebrous being with his dark ancient eyes of unfathomable seeing, their biliferous blackness spanning eons extinct and revealing my own maddened fate with a wink. Then into that monolith of chimneys urged with the gelatinous frenzy of invertebrate birth ripping free to the roof he launched into the night with a vow to return when the stars are just right Welcome to the Drebelcast Christmas Special, episode 192. The Drabblecast is a weekly short fiction audio magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. So it's Christmas time again, and Santa Claus still doesn't exist. At least that's what you keep telling yourself. Santa Claus, vast arctic city covered in snow. (laughs) Nothing but the mutterings of children and lunatics, right? Right? Um, right, totally. With all the holiday cheer and festive religious what-have-you's going on, the Drabblecast is here to remind you this year that sometimes it's okay not to believe. Hell, sometimes it's important not to believe. For example, the Mayans predicted that the year 2012 would be a great time of transition, the destruction of one age by the onset of another. Now you can panic, choosing to believe that we have a relatively short time left before the second coming of Santa, when he that rides beasts through the stars awakens from his abysmal arctic slumber to reclaim the earth with fiery elven chaos, or you can believe that Mayans never existed. Have you ever seen one? No, you haven't. And before you say anything about those temples, everyone knows that those were built centuries ago by the predators to use as vast underground alien hunting grounds. So yeah, Mayans didn't happen. Now, doesn't that feel better? By the way, if you like that Lovecraftian Twas the Night opening bit, you can download it as a separate MP3 from the Drabblecast fan archive, where sunken-faced dwarves work tirelessly to provide you with free content that goes great with eggnog. You'll find a link to it in our show notes or off our main page at Drabblecast.org. It's Creative Commons licensed, so you can share it wherever and with whomever you like. Just do us a solid and point back to the Drabblecast. Drabblecast. So, plenty of holiday magic to spread around this year. For example, someone once told me that if they were extra weird this year, good little boys and girls get a big lump of drabble in their stockings. Run to your apertures, children. It's drabble time. Drabbles are stories exactly 100 words. Send yours into drabblecast at yahoo.com. Maybe we'll run it on the show. This week's Drabble is called Zuzu's Bell, and it comes to us from the mighty Myrrh Lafferty. Mur is an author of many books, a podcaster of many podcasts, and an editor of many escape pods. A frequent drinker of gin and eater of pie, you can find her conducting various Myrrh trains at Murr Grand Central Station. Www.murverse.com. He nuts roasting on an open fire. Lucifer despairs on the celebration of his birth. Lucifer stinks with the feces of the hopeless, the wretched. Daily he bathes in the tears of the woebegone. He hopes to find the one moment where he above overlooks, disregards, forgets. Then, it will be Lucifer's time. A turkey and some mistletoe. His back twinges with memories of wings long gone. They shattered upon striking earth below but his shoulders remember. Tiny with eyes on the gold. But tonight, the fiery sky opens and unholy ichor sprays as black wings burst from Lucifer's back. He looks up and hears the unexpected. Zuzu has damned us all with one silver bell. Again, Like I said before, people, sometimes it's important not to believe. And if that message has yet to sink in all the way, I think our feature story this week should do the trick. It was this very time last year when we found ourselves following beloved Drabblecast cryptozoologist Connor Chodesworth around the Gobi Desert as he hunted mythical Mongolian deathworms. Rumor has it that Connor is currently planning his next big expedition. But in the meantime, we bring you another special report of strange activities taking place in the skies this holiday season. Connor's not the only pseudoscientist searching for animals that probably don't exist, you know? We bring you Ranger Fur Volans, A Very Cryptozoological Christmas by Tim Pratt. Tim's one of our favorite authors here at the Drabblecast, and this is an original story that we specially commissioned him to write for the Drabblecast holiday special this year. Pretty exciting. Tim lives in Oakland, California with his wife, Heather Shaw, and their son, River. His fiction and poetry have appeared in the Best American Short Stories, 2005, The Year's Best Fantasy and Horror, Strange Horizons, Realms of Fantasy, Asimov's, Lady Churchill's Rosebud Wristlet, and The Year's Best Fantasy, among others. You can dig into his fiction at www.timpratt.org. So, without further ado, we bring you Rangerfer Volans, A Very Cryptozoological Christmas, by Tim Pratt. In early December, Brad Miro walked into the office of his partner, Dr. John Estes, and said, I've got our next target. It's perfect. The public is going to love it. John closed his eyes. Oh, I haven't even finished writing the paper about the Mongolian deathworm yet. Hell, Brad, I haven't even shaken the Gobi Desert sand out of my suitcases, and you want to go after another specimen. Can't it wait until after the new year? No way, John. This one, it's seasonal. Are you ready for this? We're going to capture a flying reindeer. Flying reindeer. John tapped a pen on top of his desk. Like the kind that pulls Santa's sleigh. Exactly. Brad was practically vibrating with excitement as usual. He was only five years younger than John, but he so often seemed like a kid, while John was methodical, calm, professional, and riding his younger partner's coattails to fame and fortune. Couldn't forget that part. Brad, there are no flying reindeer. Reindeer aren't even part of the early Santa Claus legends. The whole idea comes from the poem A Visit from Saint Nicholas. Brad frowned. I thought it was from Twas the Night Before Christmas." John tried to smile patiently. same thing. Anyway, the author invented the idea of reindeer pulling a sleigh, but even he didn't intend them to fly. The notion that the reindeer actually fly is based on a misunderstanding of the poem. When it says they were rapid as eagles, or they flew, the author meant it figuratively. He just meant they were fast. The poem's narrator even says he flew like a flash to the window, but no one thinks he sprouted wings and literally flew. (laughs) Wow, Brad said. You really remember a lot from that poem. I'm a genius, you moron, John thought. My brain holds on to things. But Brad's brain could alter reality, or so John increasingly believed. He settled for saying, Yes, I read it to my kids every year." Well, anyway, poetry or not, I know that there are flying reindeer. I saw them when I was a kid. I say we catch one for the holidays. He really believes it, John thought. But then, Brad believed everything. He believed the Bermuda Triangle was a time warp, that the Earth was hollow and full of dinosaurs, and that there were aliens hidden in Area 51. He'd never finished high school, and while he read voraciously, he read exclusively within his own limited interests. When he was a teenager, he decided to become a cryptozoologist, studying mysterious and undiscovered creatures. He had no formal training, unlike John's doctorates in biology and anthropology, and he studied tabloids with all the seriousness of a compulsive gambler reading the racing form. The man was immature, naive, credulous, and not very bright. Brad Miro, cryptozoologist, should have been a laughingstock if anyone had ever heard of him at all. Instead, when he was 25 years old, he'd captured a Bigfoot and become famous overnight. The fact that Dr. John Estes had been in the woods at the time, following up a Sasquatch sighting himself, had led to their meeting and partnership. John was as respected as any cryptozoologist could be in those days, and he'd written scholarly papers and given the serious interviews about Bigfoot, while Brad went on TV talk shows and charmed everyone. Since then, they'd founded the Institute for Cryptozoological Studies, built the cryptid zoo and museum to house their specimens, living and dead, and gone on expeditions a few times a year, pursuing whatever creatures Brad took an interest in. And they'd never, ever, ever failed to find them. Oh, people will say it's a publicity stunt, John said. Brad shrugged. They always do, man, and we always prove them wrong. For the first few years of their partnership, every reputable scientist in the world had screamed hoax, but Brad and John let any credentialed scientist and scholar examine their findings. It was hard to argue against the existence of mermaids, say, when you saw one bobbing in a tank at the cryptid zoo and had the opportunity to dissect her dead mate in your own lab. Okay, John said. "'So where do we go, Lapland?' Brad frowned. "'What is that, a strip club? It's a little early in the day for that, Jono.' "'I want to kill him with sticks,' John thought. "'But you didn't slaughter the golden goose, no matter how annoying it was.' "'Oh, no, it's... there are reindeer there.' "'Or were you thinking the North Pole?' The idea was disturbing. If they went up there above the Arctic Circle, would they find a workshop full of elves with little wooden hammers building playstations and snowboards and fuzzy animatronic Sesame Street characters? Nah, nah, Brad said. We don't have to do all that. Why go after the flying reindeer when the reindeer are going to come to us in a couple of weeks? Danger for Volans, John said, looking up at the slide on the screen, which showed an anatomical cross-section of a reindeer with some modifications. The flying reindeer. I know I had my doubts, too, John said, but Brad convinced me. My speculation is that the reindeer have internal air bladders. Here, he pointed, and here. Through some unknown chemical process, probably related to their digestive system, the reindeer produce a lighter-than-air substance that fills those bladders and gives them enough buoyancy to take flight. Now, I'm not suggesting that they're light enough to pull a fat man in a sleigh. (laughs) He waited for a laugh that didn't come and cleared his throat. But, ah, enough to leap and fly for short distances. I think it's likely... Useful from an evolutionary standpoint, too, as it would help them escape predators. Obviously, these reindeer are smaller than their flightless counterparts, which one of the biology PhDs stood up. This is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. He left the briefing room, and with apologetic murmurs, half a dozen others left, too. John surveyed the 20 or so employees still in the room. Well, skeptics, eh? he said, rolling his eyes, and this time he did get a laugh, if only a small one. How about the rest of you? The head zookeeper, Steve, laughed. You guys have brought me a skunk ape, the Bear Lake Monster, a chupacabra, a jungle walrus and the Loveland Frog. You found and dissected the corpse of the Loch Ness Monster, survived an attack by the Mothman and got it on video, and I've seen Brad wear a sweater made from the wool of the Popelick Monster. Now you tell me there are flying reindeer? I say, sure, just remind me to buy some netting so I can cover the enclosure before you get one back here. Are we gonna have to go to Lapland? One of the field techs said. I hate the cold. Oh, you hate the desert too, John pointed out. But no, Brad has, um, a better idea. When he explained, five more people quit on the spot, and the rest pleaded family holiday responsibilities that would make it impossible for them to participate. Even Steve, the zookeeper, shook his head. I can't build an enclosure for him, boss, so just be sure you don't bring back anything but the reindeer, alright? Oh, where's their Christmas spirit? Brad said. He leaned back in his chair, feet propped up on his desk, which was cluttered with little wind-up toy monsters, and flipped through a copy of Weekly World News. Nobody believes in anything. Brad, John said carefully. He'd rehearsed this conversation in his head ten thousand times. I think that you're a powerful psychic, John would say. Uh, more than a psychic something almost like a god i think that you have the ability to literally reshape reality with your beliefs you could use your power to transform the world for good to create a paradise on earth you could end war hunger disease just by believing in a better world but instead you use it to bring werewolves and yeti and lake monsters to life and i've helped you i've tried to make the impossible things you somehow conjure seem scientifically plausible it's made me rich and famous two things i've always wanted to be but i've i've been taking advantage of you brad we shouldn't be studying the creatures you somehow managed to capture we should be studying you but as always the words stayed in his head Instead, he said, none of the techs are willing to help us. I can't force them, and if I fire them all, we'll be completely understaffed here. But without their help, we won't be able to set up a perimeter. We won't have any air support. Oh, that's all right, Brad said. I'm actually glad they didn't want to help. I didn't want this to be a big production anyway. Remember when we caught the Goatman in Maryland? It was you and me and a dog chained to that bumper of a car for bait and we caught that cryptid. We'll catch a flying reindeer the same way, just the two of us. Christmas Eve, some rope, tranquilizer darts, a net. We'll do it old school. John closed his eyes. Uh, but what about, uh, you know, the guy driving the sleigh? Won't he won't he be mad if we take one of his reindeer? Um, we'll just have to time it right, Brad said. Trust me, have I ever failed you? The rather terrible answer to that was, no. Christmas Eve found John huddled in the treehouse behind Brad's McMansion on Maple Street. Brad's six-year-old children were in the house, along with their live-in au pair, who was also Brad's current girlfriend. The mother of the twins had long since fled, because living with Brad could be challenging. Brad climbed up the ladder, bearing an extra blanket and a thermos of coffee. John was seated on the cold wooden boards, and he had Brad's rifle, a lasso of rope, and a large reinforced net. A thin line of smoke rose from the chimney of Brad's house, where the Yule log would burn through the night. John would have much preferred to be inside by the fire himself, but he had a job to do. Really, it was kind of exciting. He was going to see flying reindeer. He was going to see Santa Claus. All because his idiotic demigod of a partner believed they would. "Uh, Are you sure he'll come? John said. Oh yeah. Brad settled down beside him. They had a clear view of the roof from here. My kids have been super good this year. But I was wondering, how does Santa do it? Scientifically, I mean. He goes to zillions of houses all in one night. Climbs down chimneys, eats cookies, leaves presents. Even reindeer with airbags in their bodies can't go that fast. How is it possible? Brad was looking at him earnestly, as always. John coughed. Brad didn't really understand science at all, so John just had to come up with something that sounded halfway plausible. It probably has to do with quantum physics, he said after a moment. Suppose Santa can be everywhere at once, potentially, but he's only locked to a specific location if he's observed by an outsider. That's why parents tell their kids to stay in bed and go to sleep so they won't see Santa and collapse the waveform. He can appear in all those... uh, zillions of homes simultaneously. John was pretty proud of that web of bullshit, but Brad shook his head. Nah, Santa's been doing this for a long time, since way before Einstein invented quantum physics. It has to be something else. John didn't even know where to begin correcting those misconceptions, so he didn't even try. Okay, so then time dilation, sure that's it time and space aren't fixed you know santa probably just manipulates time he slows down time for himself on christmas eve so that from his perspective the single night lasts long enough to visit every house while for the people inside those houses time passes normally huh brad stared out over the roofs in the neighborhood so he can freeze time that makes sense he probably has lots of freeze powers living at the North Pole. He'd need enough time to visit six billion people. That's a lot of time. Long night. Well, not everyone on Earth celebrates Christmas, John pointed out. Uh, call it a third, so maybe two billion people. And a lot of those people live together in families. so say, uh, I don't know, it's really a third of that number of houses to visit. 667 million, give or take. So, if he spends half an hour per house, Brad said, plus travel time, I guess. Maybe 400 million hours, John said. 17 million days, over 46,000 years. Wow, Brad said. That's longer than the Earth's existed. I could shove him out of this tree, John thought. No one would ever know it wasn't an accident. But he probably wouldn't die. Um, no. But it was a long time. Uh, Let's see, 46,000 years ago. uh, That's when humans traveled to Australia from Southeast Asia for the first time. And there was a continent-wide extinction of megafauna in Australia around the same time of marsupial lions and leaf-eating kangaroos. They all died. Oh, probably not all, Brad said. You know, we should take a trip to the outback. I bet we could find some. Oh, there's our New Year's trip sorted out then, John thought. At least it'll be warm in Australia that time of the year. He shivered as snow began to fall. Brad pointed. There, look! John squinted into the sky. There was something moving in the clouds, too small to make out at this distance. But as it came closer, it was unmistakable. A miniature sleigh pulled by eight tiny reindeer, each roughly the size of a sled dog. No glowing-nosed Rudolph in the lead. That was kind of surprising. A fat man with a beard wearing a red suit shouted, Ho, 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 as the sleigh skimmed low, settling on top of Brad's house. Santa clambered out of the sleigh with an enormous bag over his shoulder and almost lost his footing on the slope of the roof. Wow, John said. I can't. This is amazing, Brad. Brad didn't answer him. He just picked up the tranquilizer rifle. The plan was pretty simple wait for Santa to land on the roof, and while he was down the chimney distributing presents, shoot one of the reindeer with a tranquilizer dart. Then down the treehouse ladder, up the ladder they had waiting at the back of Brad's house, onto the roof, cut their unconscious specimen of Range of Her Volans out of its harness, drag it down, and hide it in the shed. By the time Santa came up the chimney, they'd be. <laughs> Brad fired his rifle. The sound was a hard, flat crack, not the woof of a tranquilizer gun. Santa Claus fell over, slid off the roof, and landed in the bushes. Brad put the gun down. There, he said. Now we've got a whole team of reindeer. John stared. What? What? Not that reindeer were really the point, Brad said. Um, which is good, because I think we scared them away." The reindeer, startled by their master's fall, leapt into the air, dragging the sleigh after them. "'You shot Santa Claus,' John said. Revenge is a dish best served cold. Sorry I wasn't honest with you. I knew you wouldn't go along with it if I told you what I really had in mind." "'You murdered a man!' Not a man, a merry old elf. Come on, a human couldn't live that long? (laughs) Or do you think Santa does? He's just a fancy animal. Brad's usual grin was absent. He seemed to be staring into the past. I saw him in his sleigh when I was a little boy. Just a glimpse out my window. So the next Christmas I stayed up late, hid behind the couch, hoping to see him again. He frowned. My stepfather caught me. He didn't like it when I got out of bed without permission, and he dragged me upstairs and beat me with his belt. I couldn't sit down all day on Christmas, which made Christmas like most days. The thing is, Santa Claus was there. When my stepdad stormed in, when he grabbed me by the hair, when he started hitting me, Santa just hid behind the Christmas tree. He cared more about not being caught than he did about saving a kid from a beating. Fat. Bastard, And he goes around punishing kids for being naughty? I hate hypocrites worse than anything, John. I vowed I'd get revenge on Santa someday. I would have killed him in my own living room. But seeing Santa dead in front of the fireplace? That would seriously scar my kids. This way's way better. We can feed him to the Malawi terror beast in the zoo, make his body disappear completely. Sorry to drag you along on this, but I knew he was too big for me to dispose of the body alone. And I figured you owed me. Let's... Huh. That's funny. Look at the snow." John, who'd been wildly considering the moral implications of Brad murdering someone who only existed because Brad believed in him, stopped thinking and looked. The snowflakes weren't falling anymore. They were hanging motionless in the sky. The wind had stopped, too. Everything had stopped. Oh, right, Brad said. Santa freezes time. Huh and we somehow got stuck in that frozen time with him. How long did you say this night would last again? 46,000 years, John said. Wow, long time. I didn't really think about that. Somewhere in the distance, sleigh bells jingled. It would have sounded festive if it hadn't been the only sound in an otherwise silent night. Hey, if we can lure back the reindeer, I could take over as Santa tonight, and you could be my elf. God, John thought, he is impossible. I could just kill him. I could really just. John considered. He picked up the rifle. He'd never fired a gun before in his life, but the gun was heavy. He could use it as a club. Well that was our story, hope you enjoyed it. I could say something stirring and powerful right now about how each of us does have the ability to make peace on earth happen by first believing in it, but like Brad, I also hate hypocrites, and if I had that power I'm pretty sure the first thing I'd do is conjure up a giant pterodactyl. And what good would that thing be to me if I didn't have any enemies? So if you enjoyed this story, this episode, this special time we've shared together, consider making a donation to us to help keep this thing going weekly, that'd be awful nice of you. You can even sign up for an automatic subscription if you want to support us on an ongoing basis, but don't want to be bothered with the hassle of remembering. All that's at www.drabblecast.org. We sure do appreciate it. Lots of money and hard work go into this here operation. All right, so we're on the Twitter bandwagon. You can follow us at thedrabblecast, and each week we pick a story from the TwitFix section of our discussion forums, and we post it out on the Twitter feed. These are 100-character stories, not counting spaces. We call them twabbles. Try writing one yourself and post it on over there. You'll find our forums linked off of our webpage, travelcast.org. This week's winner is CLP with this festive story. I saw mommy kissing Santa Claus, and it became suddenly clear why I was the single teenager Sporting a fluffy white beard. Oh, snap. That fat bastard. Guard that aperture, ladies. So hey everyone, merry whatever and happy new year. Have safe travels if you're on the road, download a crap ton of Drabblecasts from our fan archive if you like, keep you alert and weirded out, share them with your friends or wherever you like. This show is produced with the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, which means don't change or sell it and you're good to go. Special thanks to our awesome episode artist this week, Drabblecast art director Bo Kyer. Bo doesn't need much introduction here. You know him and his work if you've listened to this show any amount of time. Check him and his gnarly work out at bokier.com. We'll see you next week, weirdos. Until then, our staff is made up of associate editor Matthew Bay, a horde of fuzzy animatronic Sesame Street characters, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you that predators built that shit, not Mayans.